2: pleased to bring you our feature
3: presentation live from joe's mom's basement it's the stacking benjamin show (laughs) I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. What are some common mistakes people make who have six figure incomes? Don't make six figures? Don't worry. You probably make some of these mistakes yourself. To help us out from the Afford Anything podcast, please welcome Paula Pant. And say hello to our friend from the Earn and Invest podcast, Doc G. Finally, he's a regular around here. It's OG. Plus, ever dream about owning that signed baseball card or classic signed novel, maybe movie-driven sports car or celebrity-endorsed clothing? Well, today, during our Friday FinTech segment, we welcome Rob Petrozzo from Rally, a company that securitizes and lists fractional shares of cultural collectibles. Don't worry, we'll still magnify a lucky listener's money, and I'll share some delightful trivia with you. And now... A guy who's sitting on an absolutely worthless pile of collectibles—it's Joe Salcihi. Someday Beanie
0: Babies are coming back. I know it. Hey, everybody! Welcome to Friday on Stacky Benjamins. I am Joe Salcihi, average Joe Money on Twitter, and across the card table from me on this glorious beginning of the weekend—it's Mister OG.
4: It feels like a Monday, but yeah, this is definitely a Friday. Isn't that sad? Tell. When Friday
0: feels like Monday, you know it's definitely time for the weekend. Well,
4: I guess in another way Monday though. could feel like a Friday though. You never know.
0: Yeah. I mean if it feels like Monday and you feel like you're just starting your week, that that was a really short week and now it's time to go. Yeah. That's sure. awesome. It's great. I have no idea what the hell any of that talks about. But what I do know is we're gonna talk to a woman in an undisclosed location who is joining us from the Afford Anything podcast. It's our friend Paula Pant.
2: You know, to me, everything just feels like day. Like, there is no Monday, there is no Friday, there's no Saturday, Sunday. It's all just a big blend of day, and then sometimes night.
0: It all just mixes together, yeah.
2: Exactly. And that's always sort of been my experience, but in 2020, that's even more so.
0: Are you ready to just have, like, a New Year's Eve party and get this thing over with?
2: Oh, geez. Like
0: a socially distanced New Year's party, everybody wears a mask, stays 10 feet away from each other, and we just call it a year. Go to 2021.
2: I think I'd be too anxious that 2021 might be worse.
0: Have you ever seen those variety shows where like the act comes on and they're horrible? So they bang a gong and they take like the big stick and get them off the stage.
2: (laughs) <laughs> no, but that sounds great. I know. But Is that what we're doing to the to the calendar? Should
0: we do that with 2020? It's like, okay, <laughs> it's freaking October and you still suck. Time for you to get off the stage. You've had your <laughs> chance. We know, we know it's not going to get any better. Let's go. <laughs> and a guy who's going to make this show better just because he's here with us today, it's our good friend for the Earn and Invest podcast, Doc G's here man i'm I'm cracking under
5: the pressure. You know how I know it's Friday. I can have two beers on Friday and Monday through Thursday, I can have just one so and
0: you're and and you're starting early. I hate we record this at five thirty in the morning, and I can't believe you've already had two <laughs> beers.
5: There's no specification of the time; it's just two total for the day. So if I decide to tie one on at five a m as far as I can get with two beers, I can go
0: well, you know technically, it is still dark out, so it might as well be the night before. I mean, if you use Paul's methodology where it's just day. I mean, 530, it's night. So, you know. Whatever justification you need to use, Joe. Well, tell everybody about the Earn and Invest podcast, because uh, you're rocking over there, my friend. Yeah, we have been just
5: rocking and rolling, doing our panels on Monday and our individual interviews on Thursday and just having a good time, taking the conversation deeper, going farther and uh, learning more.
0: Well, I absolutely love what's going on at Earn and Invest. And when people get done listening to us here, go over and listen to that show. Hey, we got a great show today. We got Doc G here. We got Paula here. We got OG. Let's talk about mistakes people making six figures make with their money.
5: Hello, darlings. And now it's time
2: for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines.
0: Today's piece comes to us from the How to Fire blog. Uh, John and Sam right over there. This piece is actually by Michael Dinnick. But what's interesting about this piece, and usually if you've been around these parts before, you know that we generally have a celebrity reader read these. I don't think we need to. I think instead today what we're going to do is just take these piece by piece. But before we even get to... Mistakes that six-figure earners make. I want to talk about a statistic that I saw on Twitter just before we hit record. There was a study done recently that said, what number do you imagine people make per year that are wealthy? And that amount of money was $100,000. Most people consider $100,000 to be the year wealthy number. Paul, I'll ask you first. Do you think of 100000 is as wealthy?
2: I do, but I, I also recognize that the impact of that 100000 is going to vary depending on not only where you live, but the size of your family. $100,000 for a family of six is very different than 100000 for one person.
0: Yeah. Do you feel the same, Doc? I would say that no.
5: I, I don't see people who make $100,000 a year as wealthy, but it really is taken in context, right? So it depends where you live. It depends what you spend your money on. And I, you know, the farther along I go, I hate to say it, the less I define wealth based on money, because it means so many different things to so many different people. But I know lots of people who in my area who do not think of themselves as wealthy, who make a lot more than $100,000 a year.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, to your point, too, it isn't what you make, it's what you keep, right? So, oh, you think of, you don't think of 100000 you think of like $100 million as wealthy.
4: And the reality is is that, like Doc said, it has nothing to do with how much money you make. If every day you have to get up and go work for whatever the number is, whether it's a hundred thousand or a hundred million, you're not wealthy. you have a really good paying job, which is helpful in the wealth creation process. But until you have stuff that makes money while you sleep and assets and business interests that are sellable for income streams later in life. That's what wealth is. It has nothing to do with how much money you make. It's a common misconception, especially if you're under that number. <laughs> you know, If you're making 30 grand a year, my first year as an advisor, I made 10,000. And I remember thinking, gosh, if I could make 30, I'd be rich. Like 30 grand, I'd be filthy rich. And then I got married and my wife made 40 and I made 30. And I was like, this is a dream come true. This is like $70,000, you know? Like Paula said, for two people, it was a lot of money. But we weren't wealthy when our household cracked over hundred thousand. We weren't wealthy. We made made good incomes. But when you're sitting there at thirty grand or forty grand, and you see somebody making a hundred, you go, "Wow, that guy's rich." It's funny when I first saw this
0: piece, I thought a hundred thousand, not a ton of money, and yet it really can be. To all of your points, it can be a bunch of money. It just matters what you do with it. And I know there's people listening right now that are saying. Oh, six figures, that's a problem I'd love to have, right? I would love to have that problem. And there definitely are two different problems. There's not having enough to get by, even when you tighten the belt as far as you possibly can, and then there's wasteful spending. And I think today we're going to talk about wasteful spending, whether you make six figures or not. So let's dive into this. Number one mistake on this list that Michael has is is not using a budget. Paula, when you think of mistakes of six-figure people, would you put that as mistake number one?
2: Well, I think I think it depends on how you define budget, you know. <laughs> not not to get too semantic about the question. Splitting hairs. Exactly, exactly. You know, if you think of a budget as something that could be as simple as two categories, what you save, what you spend. And you figure out those how you to split your income, your take-home income between those two buckets, you put the savings in the savings bucket. When I say save, I mean investments accelerated debt payoff, anything that improves your net worth. You put that in the savings bucket and then everything else in the spending bucket. If that could be defined as a budget, then sure. Um, I I think everyone should at a minimum do that. When it gets so um, line itemized as like, all right, here's what I'm spending on toothpaste. Here's what I'm spending on socks. I don't know if that's necessary for everyone.
0: But do you think that has to do with your personality though, as much as anything though, Paula?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if if that's your idea of a fun Friday night, go for it. But
0: <laughs> but I wouldn't there was no judgment to... at all. By the way, in that statement, you had no judgment there. Hey, if you're nerdy enough to think that that's a good time, weirdo. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, no. I would not say that it's a mistake to not be so granular. If you want to be granular, that's fine. But if you're not that granular, that's okay too, as long as you have at a minimum those two categories: save, spend.
0: But Doc, if if you are someone who is frustrated that you're making six-figure income. And you're not really sure where it goes. I mean, I remember when I was working at American Express and I had the, you know, we had this, this manager that made us write down every 15 minute increments, what we did with our time. Right. (laughs) Drove me flipping crazy. I absolutely hated doing it. And yet when I did it for a week, I found a ton out about myself. So even though Paula says you might not need that line item budget, if you're frustrated, do you think you should have that line item by line item budget, at least for a while? I think it's very
5: reasonable to do it for a trial period. Do it for a few weeks, a month or two. But I have to agree with Paula on this. A lot of the wealthy people I know pay themselves first, and then whatever's left, they use. So they don't go through that like line-by-line line budget but they make sure they've squirreled away all their money to their 401k and all their money to their taxable account. And they have everything automatically taken out of their paycheck or quickly or soon thereafter. And then they just know what they have left in the pot to use. And that's how I've always done it. The way we, when we started when I was just getting out of medical school is we took my wife's salary and just put it away. (laughs) And so whatever I made, we spent and whatever she made went directly to investments or paying off debt or what have you. So I never was granular either, but I think it gets to the same idea. So yes, you may need to do it for a short period of time for you to really understand how much money you really need. And then I would automate it and kind of have it squirreled away before you even started.
0: There are two parts to this budgeting conundrum, emoji. One part is as you're spending money tracking your expenses. The other part is beforehand, right? Having a budget is this is how much I'm going to spend. Kind of your fences and then tracking your expenses, they really happen. One of those more important than the other?
4: Well, depending on where you are in your life, I think so. You know, I think just like Doc said there, thinking about how much you spend on toothpaste or Paula said the toothpaste one or whatever, the fun Friday night, (laughs) Paula's idea of a fun Friday night, (laughs) (laughs) figuring out how much I spend on Crest this month. But, you know, we take the approach a a little different of trying to figure out what we want our money to do in advance. I know he talks about a spending plan versus a budget, but if you have already sat down and done this for the month or for the quarter, it becomes a lot easier to understand like kind of that seasonality of your money and also where... Uh, where all the big rocks are going to be throughout the quarter, or throughout you know whatever period you're looking at, throughout the month. And if you think about it like a business, businesses do this stuff all the time. They they make calculations of where's our revenue going to come in this you know over this month, and what bills do we have to pay, and you know would it make sense to delay paying this bill to to time out the cash flow. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on the business side of things where accountants and CPAs will say, you make a ton of money, but you get it at a really poor time. So you're always cash flow poor. You know, you can think about people who make high income. Sometimes a lot of that income comes at random times. You get a bonus or, or stock options or something, and you might make $6,000 a month, but you get a once a year, $20,000 bonus. Well, if you're not careful and you say, well, guess what? I make a hundred thousand a year. So I'm gonna spread it out over the year. By the time that bonus comes around, you have $20,000 in credit card bills. So some of it's uh, more of a uh, you know a forward-looking observation, I think, than, than looking backward and saying, here's, here's what I did or here's what I'm going to do.
0: What do you think about the second one on this list, Doc? Mistake number two is not having a long-term financial plan. I think it's really important
5: to have a financial plan in the first Part of that plan is trying to figure out what your really your goal is right is your goal retirement at a certain age is your goal stepping back from work and doing something you enjoy more? Is your goal getting your kids to college So I think having a financial plan is very important, but before you make those economic plans before you start looking at numbers and investments, you really got to look at what do you hope to achieve
0: but but why o oh, g do so many people roll their eyes? when you get to that point of the meeting? Because, I mean, I don't know that it happens to you all the time, but man, back when I was a planner, maybe it's changed. Everybody's like, oh, I don't want to talk about this.
4: Mostly because I don't see him because I'm on the phone now. In, oh, in the, in the, so, so you missed the eye roll. I missed the eye roll. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier. But if you don't tell your muddy what to do and you don't have a purpose for it, then it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, it's that whole Alice in Wonderland quote, which path should I take? It doesn't matter, right? I mean, if you don't have an idea of, what the time horizon is on your money, well, how do you pick which investments to choose from? Put it in cash or or do you put it in tech stocks? You know, it depends on what you need it for. Obviously, I think that everybody needs a, a financial plan, but it doesn't have to be super detailed and, and, and to the penny grinding, which is what I think you're talking about. How much did you spend on groceries last week? Let me fill that in your plan. Ugh kill me. <laughs> you know. More like, yeah, I just want to live like I live right now. If you're thinking about it from that perspective, you can take big chunks of your money and say, all right, this is my gross income. This is how much money I'm saving. This is how much money I'm paying in taxes. This is how much I'm paying on debt. And then everything else is my spending. You don't have to know where it's going. You can just go, well, that number is the, is the leftover of what I'm not paying in taxes, saving intentionally, or, or paying off debt. And, and now you can say, well, that number is 60 grand. Okay, let me figure out how to, how to right. recreate $60,000 25 years from now.
0: Backtrack like reverse engineer to get there. Paula, how granular is your plan?
2: Mine is not very granular at all. But to add to this conversation, I, I would say planning is everything, but like fa- plans are nothing. So in thinking about what you hope to achieve with your money, like that conversation, that writing exercise is important because it allows you to set a vision. But as you move through time, that vision could change. You'll, you'll receive new inputs and that will change the course of, of the direction that you're going in. So in part, the reason that my plan is not so granular is because I know that I know kind of the big targets and I know that everything else will sort of shift.
0: A lot of people right now thinking about tax planning, because as we record this, it's big time in the news. We're not going to we're not going to address tax planning in the news today because we don't do politics. But there are a lot of people going, man, maybe I need a better tax strategy. Right. So, Doc, mistake number three here, failing to minimize taxes, Yeah, I mean,
5: it behooves you to understand your tax situation and it's easy to remedy, right? You can hire help or learn on your own, depending on who you are, the best tax strategies. And you might as well hold on to your money (laughs) as much of it as you can. I think there's no reason not to do this. So I think those who decide to forego tax planning are making a big mistake and they're certainly leaving money on the table. In this case, easy money. You've already made it. You might as well keep as much of it as possible.
0: Paula, when it comes to tax planning, you've been around some of the inner circle, I I would call it, I guess. I don't know if there really is an inner circle. That's probably a bad phrase. But people in the fire movement, I just feel like in the fire movement, we talk about tax planning a ton. Mm -hmm. Is that because the public at large doesn't talk about it at all? So we kind of overcompensate over there? Or why do you think that tax planning seems to be so critical for people that want to retire early?
2: I think in the fire community, tax planning is highly emphasized because it's one of your biggest overall expenses. So if you take a look at your pre-tax income and sort of divide out where all of that goes, taxes and housing are probably the two biggest buckets, followed by food and transportation after that. And so I think people focus on it in the fire community because tweaks there can make a very uh, large impact. Is, is there
0: a problem there though, OG, potentially putting the cart before the horse and not having your money available when you need it?
4: Well, I think that's part of the plan, right? Is to understand where you're going to get your money from and, and what you know different intervals and different times. The big challenge, I think, when it comes to taxes is thinking about it in the exact opposite way that you think about it while you're earning money. Generally speaking, you earn money, then you pay taxes on it, and then you save and spend whatever's left. And when you're retired, it's the complete opposite. You spend money and then you pay taxes based on wherever the heck you took the money from. Having flexibility along the way to draw from different buckets during different tax regimes, let's talk, let's say. Maybe that's not the word you want to use, but uh, you know, there's different tax cycles. There's times where earned income is taxed differently or dividends are taxed differently or capital gains. And there's different times where things like conversions help and, and, you know, you want to take advantage of those, but, but at the end of the day, rather, I think you want to have a place to draw money from no matter what the circumstances are. And especially if you're thinking about retiring early, like we're talking about today, having all your money in your 401k is makes it a little more challenging. I'm going to go through these next ones
0: a little more quickly because especially this next one seems pretty obvious, Paula, mistake number four, spending too much money, believe it or not. Is a mistake mm-hmm. that people make, but you're somebody, and the reason I called on you is because you're somebody who says you don't budget that closely. So what do you do? Go look at your checking account every other day to make sure that you're not accidentally going over or some automatic thing didn't happen that you, you know, forgot about. Maybe subscription came through and you, you forgot about it. Do you just leave extra money in the account? Like, how do you, how do you get around yeah. spending too much?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I just leave extra money in the account so that there's always a cushion and that way i don't have to monitor it that closely there's always a cushion that the cushion's going to be ample enough that i'm realistically not going to spend beyond where that can protect me but i'm the and, type of guy that I,
0: but i'm the type of guy Paula that if i have a monthly number right that i can spend even if i have a cushion there 6 months from now that cushion's going to be gone like i will make sure that i spend just enough over that that cushion goes bye-bye after a short amount of time at some point, there's got to be, what is, is it, willpower, self-control, alerts? What is it?
2: No, no, it's, it's that feeling of freaking out when the cushion dips below a certain threshold. Yeah. When you see that the cushion has dipped below the minimum barometer of where you want it to be, it induces enough of a panic that at least subconsciously, you know, in ways that I, I don't even recognize, I get it back up pretty quickly. So I think what it is is that everyone sort of has like their threshold. For some people who get into credit card debt, they have a certain credit card threshold. Like my friend Evelyn, for her, it was $10,000. And as long as she had up to $10,000 in credit card debt, she felt fine. That's so funny. It like broke her threshold, right? And so for me, I, I just have a cushion threshold.
0: That's funny. Changing that mindset in your head that this is okay. Like $10,000 in a credit card. There's people right now screaming at their device going, are you kidding me? $10,000 in your credit card is okay? That is not okay.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: And OG goes, that's child's play. I can beat that.
4: <laughs> I was actually thinking that. <laughs> $10,000, that's your freak out number? It's like a Tuesday. <laughs> right. That's called a family
0: with three kids. That's that's <laughs> <laughs> that 10, is a crappy Disney trip. But isn't that sad? $10,000 is a crappy Disney trip. Uh, mistake number five, Doc: Doing your own investing. This one I didn't. I didn't really get because you keep hearing that investing is a commodity, right? Investments are a commodity. I think this is controversial.
5: Some people can do their own investing and do a good job at it, and others don't. I think the better take on this is not doing your own investing, but making your own financial plan. So I think no matter how good you are investing. It's always good at some point to have a professional and it may be just a one time or it might be someone you work with for a long time. But having a professional take a look at your plan that includes your investments, your possible retirement date, all of your different accounts, all of your different types of holdings and getting their feedback. But the investing part itself, it really is dependent on who you are. Some people feel very comfortable doing it all on their own.
0: Oh gee, you and I have talked about on the show before about how, you know, we're not fans of most target date funds for a few reasons and that really finding an efficient frontier based mix of investments. Isn't that hard? Are you with doc then? I mean, obviously you're a pro, but can somebody just go out and find that investing on your own? Is that really Um, your main value for somebody or is it the rest of the plan? That's the value dovetailing it
4: all. That's the value. I think it's the second part there. I mean, Doc's right. I mean, there are people out there who literally don't know it. And that's perfectly fine to go hire somebody. And then there's people out there who know it but can't execute it. And that's probably the more dangerous one because you're smart enough to do it. You just don't have the discipline to do it. Like you were talking about your cushion. You know, you just can't you you just eat into it. It's like there's too many cookies and Joe's just gonna eat one extra cookie every day. And that's just how it's gonna work. I totally will. And so an accountability partner is helpful. Or if you know that, you know, you get really stressed out about money, having somebody that, you know, is in charge of it and can kind of highlight the kind of big, broad brushstrokes of here's really what's going on and here's how this affects you. You know, we just had obviously a quite a period of time of market volatility, both going way down really quickly and also way back up really quickly. Nobody complains about the up volatility, by the way, but they complain about it going down. But if during that period of time you were really stressed out. I mean, obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on too, but if money was also the thing that worried you, it's probably better to have somebody else counseling you about it because when you see your account value go down 30%, you have to know what does that mean for me? Because all we see are dollars. You know, I had $100,000, now I have 70,000. What does that mean? Does it mean that I have to retire later? Does it mean I have to save more money? And you have to turn that into some sort of action that you can do. Or maybe it means nothing, like, you know, was really what happened. So so there's a lot of pros and cons. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who are wildly successful doing this on their own. So it's know yourself.
0: I, at the very least, like having somebody who knows what they're talking about that I'm speaking with. I mean, it doesn't have to be a licensed advisor, but just being the dumbest person in that room is always, uh, I think, a good thing. Number six here. Paula is not saving enough. What, 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 you know, what's funny is that we went back to the fire community. They don't worry about this because you know, everybody's talking about saving 60% or 80% of their income. Right. But you do see people retire too early, which could be a problem. They end up doing the math wrong and they have to go back to work. But how do you make sure that you're saving enough and for long enough?
2: Well, that's a funny question because enough, enough is a moving target. You know, by definition, (laughs) enough is a subjective number and it will change throughout your life as it'll as it'll change on a week yeah <laughs> it'll change throughout your day <laughs>
0: monday exactly. monday i'm like i need a big number by friday i'm like i can do it on half of that
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing i think one of the mistakes that people uh, who are new to fire make is they set this fixed fire number or phi number and they get really attached to that particular number and oftentimes it's because that number is based on the expenses that they had at the moment in which they first learned about the concept of fire. But the moment, if you think of of your spending as a graph, the spending over your life as a graph, the expenses that you had at the moment that you learned about fire is one random data point on this graph of spending over your life. So why would you overemphasize that particular data point over any of the others. And and I, I don't mean necessarily like on the day that they found it, maybe they found out about FIRE, then they cut a bunch of their expenses, they figured out how to live on less, and then whatever that new number is, maybe that's their phi number. But still, that is still a data point over the long-term graph, because sure, they can live at a given level now, but how long can that be sustained? And that's an unanswerable question, because life takes all of these unexpected twists and turns. So... To answer your question, Joe, enough is a moving target. There, there is no such thing as enough. And to paraphrase or to quote J.L. Collins, flexibility is the only true security. Well, and I feel
0: like to even say it another way, Paul, I feel like what you're saying is beware your assumptions, right? Because that's, right. that's where you get tripped up is you assume something and then that assumption changes because you decide that I want something different later on. Exactly. Uh, Last one here, OG, as the pro in the room here, the estate plan. Not updating your estate plan. This is a big one.
4: Well, especially because estate planning stuff changes all the time and your life changes all the time. As you make more money, people are attracted to you for a lot of negative reasons. When you have more stuff, you uh, have uh, opportunities to have increased liability. You know, when you make more money, you build a pool. When you build a pool, the neighbor kids come over you got to make sure that you're taken care of uh, in case something bad happens. If you have different business interests or different uh, dealings with other professionals, you need to make sure that that's on the up and up. So estate planning is one of those things that is overlooked largely because it's not fun to talk about. Who wants to really sit down and say, this is what I'm going to do when I die. I want all my money to be split up like this. Of course not. That's not fun at all. So Get with an estate planning attorney, make sure that everything's protected and uh, have a plan for your money. Because the reality is, is that the government already has one. So I think that's probably the biggest myth when it comes to estate planning is that I don't have an estate plan. No, you have one. Your state has one written up for you already. It's just whether or not you want to follow it.
0: I used to always tell people when I lived in Michigan, I'm like, you've seen what the state's done with our roads. Imagine what they'll do with your estate plan. Yep. Like <laughs> it's just not, not great. Potholes all over the place. Uh, doc, you are, are, you're a frequent guest, but you're still the guest on the show. So we're going to give you the last word. Paula, what's our big takeaway from these seven ways that six figure earners mess up their money?
2: I would say like an overarching takeaway is don't assume that just because you have a high income, that means that you're out of the woods. You still have to pay attention to your finances. You still have to plan and you still have to make sure that you know what your goals are, even if they're going to change and that you're moving towards them. Boy, you're Debbie Downer. (laughs) (laughs) I still got to do all that stuff. OG.
4: Yeah, uh, have a goal and have a plan. I mean, just because you make a whole bunch of money doesn't mean diddly squat. You have to figure out what to do with it. I like to plan for your money in advance. You know, there's some psychology behind that. If you sit down and do an action plan with your money before you actually get it, then you are more likely to follow uh, follow that plan, automate your stuff. And ultimately, uh, just remember that just because you're making a whole bunch of money doesn't, doesn't mean that you're wealthy.
0: Doc, you got the last word, man.
5: Yeah, the hard and fast rule is that there are no hard and fast rules. There's a lot of gray area there in it. As OG and Paula were talking about, it really depends on what your goals are. And so we are all very different people and we manage things very differently and we have different goals. And so you start with your goals and then you do what works for you.
0: Doc, I like your takeaway way better than Paula's. She's like, you got to keep planning. Yours is like, there is no hard and fast rule. Like, I can have ice cream for dinner because there's no hard and fast rule here. You can definitely have ice cream for dinner. Much much more friendly than yours, Paula. Much more friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Petroso works for a company called Rally. Paula, have you ever collected anything?
2: When I was a little kid, I collected stamps. Except they weren't valuable stamps. They were just what they sold at the post office.
0: I had some place that, that my mom signed me up for where they were stamps from around the world, and they were worthless stamps, but it was really cool <laughs> getting them from all over the place. It was so, so fun. Doc, you collect anything? Oh, yeah. Baseball cards, coins, stamps. Pretty much if it was collectible, I was interested in it. Remember that old, like, Honus Wagner card they talk about worth a lot of money? I'm still dreaming of it. Yeah. Well, Rally has one. And what's interesting, the people like OG and I have talked about for a long time about collectibles is, is number one, it's dangerous because it costs a lot of money and it's going to cost you most of your net worth. Second, there's there has to be people that want it. Who knows if there's going to be people that want it or not? So... Not for everybody, but what's cool is on our Friday FinTech segment today, Rob and his team at Rally have figured out a way to take some of these iconic things, break them into little shares and make it so that the average person maybe can have a little bit of one of these iconic items. Let's say hello to Rob from Rally on today's Friday FinTech. And I'm my dad's shortwave radio, my new friend from Rally, Rob Petrozo. How are you, man? So I'm doing well, man. How are you? Well, I'm great. I have to bring everybody up to speed on what we're looking at. You are in a showroom at Rally right now. And longtime fans of the show know that my dad has one of the few shortwave radios that has video. But you have a classic car behind you. And this is kind of, I think, a great way to talk about Rally. Tell me what's behind you.
6: Yeah, so I'm in our, in our rally showroom right now on uh, Lafayette between Princeton Spring and Soho. So we have behind me right now is a 1982 uh, Aston Martin Vantage. Around me is kind of our museum setup where we have a Babe Ruth signed baseball. We have a Honus Wagner card. Um, we have one of the rarest Birkin bags in the world, a pair of Michael Jordan's game-worn 1988 uh, Jordan 3 sneakers. So we're kind of in like the flagship showroom right now of rally where we showcase some of the
0: most unique and the most important sort of cultural assets. It's funny that when we turned this on and I saw that right away, my first thought was, Rob, why don't I just, I can watch the Aston Martin for you. I mean, no, you know. Uh, listen, as long as you get it back before we do the IPO, by all
6: means, feel free.
0: I'll throw you the keys. Just try and keep it clean. Bring it back with a full tank I, of gas. I then... am your man, Rob. We are now BFFs. We're totally BFFs. Well, tell me th- th- tell me about Rally. Give me the origin story because I love how a company like Rally was created. Are these people that that are interested in, I mean, you guys just passionate about collectibles and decided what the heck, let's make this available for everybody. Tell me how it works.
6: Yeah, so I mean, four years ago when we started, or around five years ago at this point almost, when we had the concept on paper, myself, uh, my co-founders Max and Chris, we've known each other for a long time. We all come from kind of different backgrounds, but this one unique trait between all of us that we shared was this sort of collector mentality. For Max, he's been in finance for a long time; he's our CFO, and uh, you know, he grew up in Germany, and and Porsche is basically a language there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, likewise, he was somebody who he's been around cars his whole life, but he's also got a really a keen understanding of the collective market in a bunch of different spaces. And then for me, I was an artist as a kid and I went to art school. And I think that was kind of like my entry into what collecting actually is, where with art, you know, you buy what you like and if it makes money, that's great. But that's never that's never been the goal for me. But what happened was individually the three of us kind of saw these really unique alternative assets going up and to the right in a pretty crazy way, where they were the things that we knew and recognized and appreciated, but the access lane didn't exist. Before we came around and some of the the funds that have kind of come out over the course of the last 10 years or so, really, it was look from a distance, watch the auction results, see the headlines on prices, but collect the lesser versions. And that was something that kind of we realized was a big problem, not just for us, but for a huge group of people who now are really financially savvy. Maybe they have equities in their portfolio. They have a 401k, but investing in things that you care about at a price point that's approachable without having to be an accredited investor was something that we want to sort of solve for So that was the the birth of Rally, which now is a true platform for buying and selling stock in those high-value assets, very similar to the way you would buy equities on any exchange or any platform.
0: I want to talk in a second, dig down into how that works. But first, let's talk about some of the stats around getting involved in the collectibles market. I'm sure you know about the swings in collectibles. Tell me about what people can expect when they invest in the collectible market.
6: Yeah, so it's not that dissimilar from any other space in that there's ups, there's downs, there's some some riskier assets, there's volatility, there's times of very low volatility. Right now, we're in a time where there's a lot of new liquidity coming to the marketplace. And what you're seeing is a price transparency that didn't ex- exist before is kind of trying to find itself. That's kind of the way I see it. So where a year or two ago, you might have had a baseball card that you know, sits around for, for a few years and then all of a sudden that player gets inducted into the Hall of Fame. There's a lot of newfound attention on it. And you'll see prices move a little bit. Now what's happening is a lot of it goes game by game. And there's sort of this short-term, throw some money at something that I saw move quick and I feel like a lot of attention is going to be on and play some quick upside. But what we kind of focus on and what we at Rally really want to sort of hone in on what we've always thought about as our kind of bread and butter as a platform and what we care about is the stuff that has staying power is the best in class is the one of ones is the stuff that it really moves uncorrelated a lot of times to the general markets into the general economy even in certain cases but more so it's got generational appeal it's not something that's gonna be the fly by night and we try and focus on that but what's happening right now is very much sort of you know, a rush into what people view as the most unique right now assets. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you have the riskier bucket, then you have the bucket that's more about kind of preparing for the future and really making a, a, a long-term play as opposed to a bet. You're looking
0: for more timeless assets then?
6: Yeah, I think that what we always look for when we when we approach an asset is that it has to meet our criteria, which a lot of times means a history of appreciation uh, it means very specific provenance, which we like when that goes back a little further than you know a month or two. We want to make sure it has kind of that reputation around wherever that asset actually is. But more so for us, you know, as a platform, we invest in each offering up to 10% of the total value. We do that off of our books, so it's not something where we're getting preferred shares. It's something where we invest the same price as any investor, and we can't sell until the asset exits. So we do believe in the assets, and we get behind them too. And we want to make sort of smart plays with our money the same way anyone else would. So while we can't necessarily preach to what the future of any asset's going to be, we make sure that we're finding the best-in-class version that ticks all those boxes and has that real provenance as much as we possibly can.
0: Well, we've, I'm sure, excited some people, Rob. We've also probably confused them about how this works. So let's take one asset and dive into how it works. I was very interested. What I saw on Facebook is a guy that was an English major, uh, an original Great Gatsby, I believe, signed by F. Scott Fitzgerald. So let's just take that one asset and tell me about how somebody would get involved with that, it, buying a collectible through Rally. Yeah,
6: so I'll give you the the long and short of it. This is, uh, you know, an American classic, but also something that's incredibly important to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. reasons. The the Great Gatsby in particular. So that's the book that for me was required reading in high school. but well, it also me too. Became, yeah, and it's also something that, though, it has this sort of generational appeal where – regardless you know the roaring 20s now or something that's hyper relevant again for some of the wrong reasons but it's also a situation where everybody thought this year was going to be like this gatsby-esque kind of you know rush to the trappings of wealth and everybody is doing great so granted some things change that being said gatsby in itself is this timeless piece that we look at as a true institution so when we were able to sort of acquire a, a version we had two or three options. We found one that's one of the earliest releases of the first edition. It's signed in described by F, Scott Fitzgerald, which obviously is something that adds a level of sort of appeal to this book that doesn't exist in others. But also it's something that, you know, with the movie having come out over the last decade, with the idea that we're in this space right now, a hundred years later and so many different things are happening, that to us was an automatic. Also, it's rare in a way that ours is one that's in in really remarkable condition relative to others in the market. So we priced that out. That's a $200,000 asset that we've sort of uh, run through the SEC like you would any stock. Uh so, it's it
0: qualified. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. So let me let me stop you right there. So you yeah. guys at Rally, you already bought the book. You you own the book. So in some cases, we'll buy opportunistically if we feel like it's a
6: great deal. And okay. this is something that we looked at and we said we'd rather have this in-house so we can build some content around it, hold on to it, and make sure that we have complete access unfettered. So in some cases— uh, we'll work on a consignment model. In other cases, we'll do uh, an owner can maintain some equity and play the upside if they made some money, take a little bit off the table, but bring it to our platform. Sure. In all cases, we're trying to make sure that the things that people really care about become accessible. In some cases, it requires us to put money out of pocket, and we're comfortable doing that, again, because we do invest in these assets as well. We felt like this this particular version of Gatsby – Wasn't going to be on the market long if we didn't sort of swoop in and pay cash.
0: Well, and this is the problem, as you know, Rob, people have had with collectibles. We always get some pushback when we talk about collectibles on the show because you have to invest so much money toward the collectible, right? That it makes it difficult for the average person to get in. So this gets rid of at least that slice of risk because you can invest in it in a partial share. But let's talk about how you how do you make it a company then? So you take this Gatsby book. And yeah. you make it a company, you go through the SEC channels and, and fractionalize yeah. it? Yeah.
6: So this is essentially uh, LLC. That's Gatsby LLC, let's call it. And every individual asset that we have on the platform is its own entity. It has its own balance sheet. It has its own, you know, risk and liabilities. It has its own insurance and everything individually is handled under this shelf of rally. So a few years back with the JOBS Act, which was really intended for crowdfunding and to give access to some new investment types that went around crowdfunding. That was it. We were able to leverage that and turn it into something that was uh, through Reg A Plus, which is inherently tradable. Yeah. So, what we do is essentially turn each of those into a company. That company is managed by us and it's got a cap table that's full of all these individual investors. So, with the Gatsby book in particular, which goes live uh, on the 18th. That's one that will have, call it, three or four hundred investors. And it's a $200,000 IPO. There are 4,000 shares, so $50 per share. Someone could buy one share. Someone could buy up to 10% uh, of the individual assets, so up to 400 shares. But it's something that everybody will maintain a piece and be on the cap table with that book. Uh, The IPO closes. It goes into a lockup period. Then 90 days from now on our platform, it trades via bid-ask through registered broker-dealers. And uh, prints one price, sort of a clearing price, end of day. And then we continue to hold those regular trading windows to
0: make sure that there's liquidity. So then for all purposes, really, it's public. I
6: mean, it's public. It's on the SEC website. You can look up Gatsby and you'll find this book and you'll find out all the sort of risks that go with it. You'll find out the prices and the the historical values. And you'll find all the details around the provenance within that SEC documentation.
0: Gotcha. And, And because it's part of Reg A, I mean, not to get... Too nerdy for our listeners again, but this means my understanding is this means that it's not just for accredited investors. anybody could own a piece of the Great Gatsby.
6: Yeah, so you go through the same sort of you know KYC and AML that you would with a Robinhood account or a Fidelity account. It's the social security number and the quick check and and then deposit some cash. But it works very very similar to what any sort of platform that's geared towards sort of potentially a younger crowd, but really anyone who isn't a millionaire isn't uh, you know doesn't make. $500,000 per year. And a lot of what happens or what has happened since sort of 08, 09, I think this is kind of the origin story of the business a little bit too. A lot of these assets have really skyrocketed in a way where there's a small group has sort of the whole batch and yeah. they've made a lot of money on paper with that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that a 17 or an 18 or a 20 year old doesn't understand exactly what it is and why it's important. That person in my mind should have the same access to those investments as, you know, somebody who's wealthy and has been around and has the ability to sort of get a book like this via one text message. There should be a situation that anybody can kind of get involved and get invested in a meaningful way if if it meets their risk appetite. And that's what we've always tried to work towards at Rally.
0: Let's uh, talk lastly about how you guys make money. Obviously, like you said, you're investing in these assets right along with other people, but Mm. you must make some money, I would imagine, on the management fee for each one of these companies.
6: No, nah, so we I mean, I'll be honest, we tried to avoid doing going the management fee route. And in our mind, and in my mind personally, the the idea of a carry and the, the two twenty method and, and what's been sort of in place with funds for a long time is is a little bit antiquated. We know that we want to be able to sort of earn the trust and earn money for our investors before we kind of ask for it. So for us, we make a little bit of money on a sourcing fee on, on certain items, not all. If a seller comes to us and they would have gone to an auction house and done a there would have been a 25% premium. For us, we might charge that person a 5 or 10% premium to put it on our platform. But we're really sort of focused on making sure that we're not passing our costs to our investors. What we will be doing is adding that premium tier, which will have things like early access and it'll have sort of syndicate investing and some of those premium features that our investors have been asking for. But really, we want to build this platform out in a way that was truly free and as free as it can be. And then once we have sort of a bigger asset inventory now, we're at 100 IPOs as we kind of add 100 more go to a bunch of other verticals and a bunch of other spaces. We'll access those premium opportunities, and that'll be a pay feature in the app. But other than that, right now we're playing the upside. We have a little bit of money on those sourcing fees. We run some events. That's kind of paused for a little while. But really, it's about building out this platform and earning our investors their money before we kind of ask for the money.
0: Why would events be paused right now, Rob? Why on earth would you not be having uh, events right now? Well, it, it, it turns out the appetite for events isn't as great as it was six months ago right now. so I don't know but what you're talking about. We've what? kind of <laughs> taken it a little bit easy. We figured let everybody give everybody a breather. We had some great, great parties here at the show, and we want to give
6: everyone a six-month breather, then we'll come back. Uh,
0: that's great. Yeah, the pandemic worked right into your grand plan. It was all part of the plan. Perfect. Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, people can go to the website, rallyrd.com, but also you're on iPhone and Android. Yeah,
6: iPhone, Android. We have a web version. You can check us out on Instagram at at Rally. But, uh, you know, we really are sort of always taking feedback and and we want to hear from all these investors. We want to hear from everybody who has an idea of what they think should be on the platform. That's somebody we want to talk to. So we're always open for the conversation.
0: Rob, thanks a ton for talking Rally and Collectibles with us. It's pretty exciting. This is awesome. Likewise. I appreciate it. Thank you so
3: much. Hey, trivia fans, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And you know, after hearing more about rally, it reminds me of all the huge money collectibles I've got just laying around here. For example, right here, I'm lucky to have Jimmy Anderson's left shoe that he lost while he rounded second after he hit the big home run that saved us from finishing in last place back in eighth grade. I know, right? No, you can't have it. And that's just the beginning. Before you get excited and start lighting up my text messages with requests for more of my treasures, let's get to today's trivia question. Since we heard quite a bit about The Great Gatsby from Rally in 2013, my boy, Leo DiCaprio, starred in the film version of the book. So how about this question? How much did that movie gross? I'll be back faster than you can make a fortune bootlegging.
0: All right, the score at this particular juncture is Len has 13, Paula has 13, and OG has 12. You remember last time it tightened, and Doc, I know you're playing for somebody different every time you're here today, you're playing on behalf of Len, so sadly, you're going to get the last choice. Uh, OG, you're in the catbird seat, though, being down by one. Would you like to guess the answer to this question, first in the middle or last?
4: Yeah, I'm going to go last.
0: Paula? Uh
2: I will guess in the middle.
0: Which means you get to decide first, doc. This uh Yay. Leonardo DiCaprio version of uh, The Great Gatsby. Did you see this movie? I think I did. I'm I'm vaguely remembering it. Did you see it, Paula?
2: I did. Yes, no. I actually what? did see this movie. <laughs> <No way. laughs> I know, right?
0: You, you are so disappointing. Like the last month and a half. I
2: have, I, know. I have
0: no idea what's happened. OG, you didn't see this. Of course I did.
4: Yeah. You I, did I see actually, it. I actually recall liking it even. Oh, I hated it. I thought it was
0: a horrible version of it, but anyway. So
4: let's uh, not
0: dwell on that. Doc, you're up first. How much money did this atrocity make?
5: I have no clue how much money movies make. And I can't even remember how successful this movie was comparatively. So I am going to throw out $450 million.
0: 450 million. Sounds good to me. I'll take that kind of money. Paula, what do you think? Is that high or low?
2: So I don't know the movie industry. I don't know what a decent movie typically grosses.
0: I don't think that stopped you the last six weeks.
2: So, I'm just going to tell you the number that popped into my head for no reason at all as soon as I heard the question, which was 80 million. I thought you were going to say $80. 80 $80.80. 81 cents. Yeah, 80 million is my guess.
0: $80 million for Paula and OG. What do you
4: think? Is this worldwide sales? This is total worldwide sales. Gross, huh? He had to ask that if, as if it made a difference i remember I remember the last one we had about because you know these are really dumb, like the whole thing about hey. like guessing how much movie comes up. we're sitting I mean, right here. I was here. off by like a factor of like seven billion <laughs> last time. <laughs> it was the Harry Potter or... And you still won No, I didn't. Oh, you
0: didn't win. that's right No.
4: I, I picked like 800 million, and the answer was like eight and a half billion. It was like <laughs> way off. yeah, Len won with two billion for that one, and he was way off. Uh, so I don't have any idea. I, I don't think it was wildly successful either. 80 million seems like a really low number for a movie. I mean, Leo probably pulled down like 35 just for showing up. So I'm going to say it was more than that, but less than that. I'll give Paula just a little wiggle room here and I'll say 87 million. 87 million. <laughs>
2: well, that's very generous. Thank you. I think the
4: numbers, I my real, my real guess would probably be like 152 but I'm not going to risk it.
0: Well, that was very nice. Not a complete Chelsea Brennan there, but close. All right. We would love to tell you who's right, but we're going to make you wait a minute. We'll be right back. I have to tell you, I'm super excited. I told you a couple of weeks ago that I was going to finally pull the trigger on this, but because of my pending move, I told them to wait, but it's coming and I'm super excited because... This is one of those things that I've always wanted to do for myself, but haven't done it. And I'm sure you've had those things too, that for whatever reason, you're like, you know, I'd like to be better at this or that, but you just don't have time. For me, I've always wanted straighter teeth on the bottom, a little bit improvement to the Joe smile. Well done putting it off. Thanks to candid straightening. My teeth is simpler, easier, and more comfortable than ever. Candid, clear aligners are comfortable, removable, and practically invisible, unlike wire braces, so you can transform your smile without anybody noticing. Plus, your treatment's prescribed and monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's also an expert in tooth movement, because your tooth are going to move. Your tooth is, are going to move. Your teethies going to move. And it's all done From the comfort and convenience of your own home, Candid works only with orthodontists, never general dentists like other companies. Plus, supervising orthodontists will be with you every step of the way. With Candid, your treatment includes remote monitoring by the same orthodontist who created your plan, so you never have to wonder how you're doing. You'll always know, and I absolutely love that. Same person all the way through, so it works like clockwork. The average Candid treatment? Just six months, you'll start seeing results way before then. And by the way, it costs thousands of dollars less than braces. You can keep stacking your benjamins. Start straightening your teeth today. Right now, all you lovely stackers can save $75 on Candid Starter Kit. Go to candidco.com slash S B. That's candidCO.com slash S B, and then use code SB. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save $75 at your starter kit. Candice codesb slash code SB. And seriously, when you do this, write me. Cause I'd love to hear about your experience too. Let's straighten our teeth together, guys. You're probably used to scrolling through social media, catching headlines and bits and pieces. That's a good way to follow the chatter and kill a few hours, but you need a better way to understand the news. And that's why NPR has a new daily podcast called consider this. We don't just catch you up on what's happening. We help you make sense of the day because once things make sense, you can get off your phone and go for a walk or something. Listen to consider this from NPR every day. Doc, you opened up and right now it looks like you've got the huge number at 450 million. But I'll tell you one thing, and I don't know the answer to this either. The one thing that I have usually heard, if a number hits a hundred million, it's a hit. So if it's a hundred million, it's a hit. So four fifty to me, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I like to make my mark one way or another. <laughs> yeah. And Paula, you're just you're just below that at eighty, yeah, although I, although OG stole your upside.
2: I mean, well, I have eighty three point five million and down.
0: <laughs> I have that entire range. You're hoping you're you're hoping that Leonardo showed up for less money. On this.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I'm hoping Leo showed up for like five to 10.
0: Yes. Uh, what people don't know backstage is that Paula showed up for 30 million to this recording session. So oh,
2: thank you. You can Venmo me afterwards.
0: Well, it's the monopoly money, but oh. yeah, it doesn't Venmo like the rest of it, but you know, and then OG 87 million. That gives you what? Somewhere in the 200 something range.
4: Yeah. I don't have any idea.
0: Right. Well, well, Doug does, so let's see what the answer is
3: here. Doug? Hey, Trivia Fanatics. I'm your pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And, you know, speaking of collectibles, did you know my El Camino is one of a kind? I mean, only 57,072 El Caminos were produced, I'm sure, driving the value way up sky high. But what makes my El Camino such a collector's item is that primo purple paint job done by Gertrude's Cousin Lou. And uh, oh, the white leather interior, the incredible Chevy hood ornament I borrowed from a 78 Monte Carlo in a parking lot somewhere, and the since discontinued disco ball hanging from the rear view mirror. That thing was cherry. Not that I would ever part with my prized stallion, but you know i mean if the right seller came to me with an amount say uh, over 85 or 90. Uh, well it'd, it'd be wrong not to at least consider it right look i'm gonna check my phone for the flood of texts coming in that i'm sure are going to be offers now that i've set a price now look rally doesn't have an exclusive on all the good collectibles do they I'm going to get you today's trivia answer. The question was, in 2013, Leonardo DiCaprio starred in the film version of The Great Gatsby. So the question is, how much did that movie gross? If you guessed a stunning $353 million, then you'd be right. Well, I'd love to stay and chat, but it's time for me to figure out how much my Orange Crush bottle cap collection might be worth. I'm going to be rich. See ya hey and that's and if you put that in two thousand twenty
0: dollars there you're, oh, you're <laughs> it's <right> four hundred and fifty, <laughs> yeah, bam, that's right with inflation, doc coming through with the win,
5: of course, I won for Len of all people, like the one guy I wanted to lose for
0: well, you could my won. one in ten where yeah. I might win, you had the opportunity to throw it, you could have said eighty dollars or a hundred dollars it made, <laughs> but you had to go with the four fifty so. Paula, that puts you back behind by one now.
2: Wow. Well, at least, uh, does that mean I get to decide whether I want to go first in the middle or last?
0: It, it decides that you'll, you'll be in the middle still because OG oh. didn't get it either. So, wah, wah. yeah, if you throw the next one, then then, right. then then maybe you get the chance. In the fourth quarter, though, this this race is still tight. So fun. Hey, let's uh, speaking of fun, let's take out the magnifying glass and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnify money.com doc. You know what happens when you go to dot com forward slash magnify money.
5: I have no clue.
0: Oh, come on. How many times have you been on this thing? Of course, you know, you find out when you go to dot com forward slash magnify money, those financial products you use every day at the brick and mortar bank. Nowhere near best in class, over 92% of the checking accounts, savings accounts, credit card offers, consolidation loans, student loan refinances, all available at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash money. You can rank them against each other, decide which one's best for you, look at reviews, any of those things. Today, we're going to go to our Facebook group that we call The Basement. It's at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement if you just want the quick way to go there. Gertrude is the room mother there. She'll ask you a few questions about making sure you're not going to spam the group and then, uh, and then you can have fun with dad jokes and questions like this one from Brian that I thought I'd ask you guys today. Brian says a tough question for the basement. My neighbor's unbankable with terrible credit, much like neighbor Doug. He's the only person in his job who actually gets a check and has to bring it to a check cashing place. He's a convicted felon, has a foreclosure on his record in an auto repo, currently going through divorce after 20 plus years of marriage, but no bankruptcy. So he's got that going for him. He's now in his 40s, a new grandpa who's trying to get his financial life in order. The goal is for him to eventually be a homeowner again, but that's going to be a hell of a journey from where he is now. He's a really nice guy and a good neighbor, and I'd really like to help him out with any advice to get him started on the path to financial redemption. Do you stackers have any ideas how to dig out of such a deep financial hole? Thanks, Brian. I thought was really nice of Brian to come to the group and want to help his neighbor. Um, glad he didn't use his neighbor's name. Not sure if his neighbor wanted to be out it, so that's, that's good of Brian, too. But Doc, we'll start with you. What do you think? How do you help him? So first of all, I think this is
5: personal finance 101. So before you get to any of it, the question is what's going on in this person's life in general, that's got them to this place, right? Because if you don't help them figure out what's going on in their life emotionally and mentally, it's really hard to do the step of getting your finances in order. So obviously lots going on in this person's life. They've had a lot of hardship and they've got to start working on that whether that's seeing a therapist or who knows what, but when it comes to the The actual financial part, uh, they didn't mention debt, like if the person's majorly in debt or not. But really, this is personal finance 101, right? So it's picking up a copy of Your Money or Your Life or The Simple Path to Wealth or the myriad other books that are out there and starting with the basics. Are you budgeting? How much are you making every month? How much do you need to spend? What can you save? Have you started on your emergency fund? I am not a big proponent of Dave Ramsey, but that's a a perfect person for a Dave Ramsey type program too. This is a person who needs the basics and they need to kind of figure out just what they need to survive and then start building from there. So again, personal finance 101, they just got to get their act together and start building.
0: Does you worry, Paul, about becoming a homeowner at this point?
2: No, no, that's uh, way far down the road. And, and that's one of those things that I think people often leap to when they want the psychological feeling of having done something great with their money rather than the actual more invisible, but often more ultimately valuable, putting your money in savings, putting your money in retirement accounts. You know, those things that we, that are not tangible. They're not visceral. We can't touch it. We can't see it, but it makes a huge difference. And so. For that reason, yeah, partially, absolutely, the the personal finance 101 is big, but stepping back a little bit, I think in in order to stay motivated, there needs to be a really big why, right? Like, what is the reason that you're getting your money act together? What is the reason, like, what is it all for? Uh, And I think that some conversations, ideally with some people who are trained in such conversations, around identifying that why or that purpose could go a long way.
4: OG? I look at this from a very tactical standpoint of, like, what's the order of operations? The the first thing, like, has already been said is you got to figure out, like, what's going on. Because you don't become unbankable. You know, my son is bankable. He's 10 or 11, he would, (laughs) you know, remind me. But um, so there's got to be something some underlying issues, whether it's, oh yeah, I've got all this money that I owe the bank that they won't let, you know, whatever. So I would say very tactically, you got to get a copy of a credit report. You got to get a copy of your LexisNexis report and find out like what is out there about you. Some of it's going to be true and some of it's probably not going to be true. Some of it's going to be current and some of it's going to be way outdated. Then you have to figure out how to attack those things so that you can get out of you know, the, the rat race that you're in, um, all of that other stuff around, you you got a budget, you have to make sure that you have enough money set aside for emergencies. And all of that is absolutely true as well. But I want to see the first piece of this getting to the point where you're not, you know, writing a whatever percent check cashing fee is of your of your paycheck every single solitary week as well. So house ownership completely off the table for at least the next five years. Because, but, do you, but,
0: but do you still keep that like on the wall as your vision, like your long-term vision to get you through this? Cause it sounds like, you know, he's going to have to go through some pretty damn boring stuff to get to
4: anywhere. Absolutely. You can have that vision board of convertibles and lake houses and, and, and regular houses and all, you know, all that other sort of stuff and reward yourself along the way. You don't have to, you know, just put your head down for the next, you know, five years, but Just like has been said many different places, you know, you didn't get into trouble money-wise in a day and a half. So you're not going to get out of it in a day and a half. It's just not going to happen. And so you have to enjoy the little wins that happen. I know, Doc, you said you're not a big fan of Dave Ramsey, nor I. However, the snowball thing psychologically works. Just take those wins when you can. I think you'd be surprised that there's a lot of that stuff that hangs out on your credit report that is so small, you know, and they've made some reforms in this area to kind of help people who are being impacted by this, like medical bills and that sort of thing. But you might look at it and see IOTCF Bank $11 because of an overdraft from 1987. It's like, great news. <laughs> $11 solves this problem. Or you may find out it's $1,100,000. Okay, well now you've got other problems. The least of which is what the hell is an eleven hundred thousand? I was on a roll. But
0: don't stop him. Yeah.
4: So very tactically get the credit report, get the Lexus Nexus stuff, and just start prioritizing, you know, what what are we doing?
0: I'm still back on you can't get out of debt in a day and a half. I mean, I call Paula Debbie Downer. I think you're Debbie Downer, man. Can't get out of here in a day and a half.
4: Yeah, Come well, on. Enjoyed the suck. It just is like, it's just, this is just going to suck for the next period of time. And you just have to, you have to learn how to like it.
0: But I will tell you this though, the suck ends up feeling really good. Like when you're, when you're there and you've got that foundation, you have that foundation built, then it feels good. Yeah, when really you get good. out of
4: it, when you're past all of it, you'll never do this again because of how crappy it was Yeah, as an experience. And the great news is no matter what the outcome is, so let's say that all you're going to dedicate to to getting out of this problem is $250 a month. Well, guess what? You've half-funded your Roth IRA when you're on the other side of this, you know, because your life will just work into whatever is necessary to uh, to accommodate, uh, the you know, whatever plan you put together. So good luck. Thanks
0: for bringing that to the basement, Brian. If you've got a question you want us to answer directly, by the way, head to stacking forward slash voicemail. And uh, we're happy to have the team talk about it. And if you're brave enough to do that, by the way, we're also going to throw in a greatest money show on earth, Stacky Benjamins circus t-shirt. And if you want, you can even brag about what size you are because people always seem to want to do that. Even though we give you a code, if you want to brag, you can, that's up to you. All right. That's going to do it for today but not before we find out what's going on with all you crazy characters but uh, uh OG big plans this weekend
4: uh yeah actually as a matter of fact uh my kids have uh, sporting events cross country meets to go to wow. and uh and uh, football games to attend this weekend the uh, we're getting ready for the onslaught of in-laws and parents so in, in another week and a half give or take my in-laws show up for uh you know just a short visit of However the how long they feel like staying. And then we kick them out for a few days. And then my mom and her husband show up until they feel like leaving sometime before Christmas. It's gonna be great.
0: By the Keep way, waiting. I'll I'll be at your house next Tuesday night. Just wanted to tell you without the recorder running. <laughs> that is
4: not surprising. I will that, I will uh, be there
0: Tuesday night. Yep. You're actually pretty lucky, I told you four days ahead of time. You gotta admit.
4: <laughs> the doors are always open, and you know, I had people in my backyard. Two Fridays ago, because they know that there's a tap back there. I wasn't even home. <laughs> My wife's like, Do you know these people in our backyard? I said, Oh yeah.
0: You're like, Nope. No clue who they are. Yeah. Paula, what's going on at the Afford Anything Podcast?
2: At the Afford Anything Podcast. So we have new content. The September sabbatical is no over way. We're into October. So we've got these new interviews. Uh Which include a recording between me and you, Joe? no way in which we answer questions that come from the community. We also have an interview with Gleb Sapersky about uh well, you'll just have to tune in to find out what it's about, but a couple of hints is it deals with this year and it deals with our brain, our psychology, and how to um how to handle all of it. oh so man, all of that is on the afford Anything podcast
0: always fun. Always interesting and always wherever you listen to the show. Exactly, Mister Doc G. Thanks for hanging out with us again. It's been too long. Yeah, it's great to be back. Let's talk about what's coming up on Earn and Invest.
5: So on Monday we are doing an episode about life after retiring early. Talk about enough, right? We were just talking about on this episode what enough means. We have Grant Sabatier on with Bryce and Christie. Yeah, never, never before with Bryce and Christie from Millennial Revolution. (laughs) Never heard of them either. We do a lot of deep discussion about how life isn't just roses and flowers after you decide to hang it up at your job that, you know, sometimes you still have tough times and you still have disappointments. And uh, even though I think they they all like being retired, uh, it's not just as simple as you hang it up at the job and everything is perfect.
0: Is this contagious? Are you now Debbie Downer too? It's like started with Paula, went to OG. Is this like financial uh, COVID? Thing?
5: You know, it's, just- it's much more fun. Those are the better conversations. They're right. much more
0: exciting. It is like how you get out of all that. And that's at the Earn and Invest podcast, which is also wherever you're listening to us right now. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from
3: here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our roundtable. Just because you're making good money doesn't mean you're making good choices with the funds you bring in. Remember, riches are made by separating the big amounts you make from the smaller amounts you spend. Second, take a lesson from Rally. Collectibles were horrible investments in the past, but the classics? Well, they're classic for a reason. But the big takeaway... (laughs) orange crush bottle caps are worthless yeah try telling that to the denver broncos next thing you know you're telling me that nobody's collecting ducktales comic books wait really all right well how about these porcelain dolls your mom made and uh and worked really hard on nobody wow uh what about model trains oh come on You're taking away, I mean, model trades, they got to be worth. Okay, fine. Special thanks to Doc G for joining us again on the Roundtable. You can listen to Doc G's podcast, Earn and Invest, wherever you listen to finer podcasts. We will also have a link to his website and show on our Stacking Benjamins show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Also, special thanks to Rob from Rally for joining Joe today to discuss another option for purchasing collectibles. You can find out more about Rally at rallyrd.com. Paula Pant appears courtesy of affordanything.com and AffordAnything podcast. All the Afford Anythings. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahide, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter, at SBenjamin'sCast, or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
0: Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. I want to ask, since we just have uh, friends that are podcasters on, just... And 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 we've all been podcasting for a while, Doc. What are you at? Two and two years, two and a half years? Yeah,
5: I'm I'm the baby podcaster here. We're coming up on two years in
0: mid November, which is amazing because two years for a podcast, you know, Paula is. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a long time to keep this thing going.
2: Yeah, that's so, 87 in dog years. That's right.
0: <laughs> o G and I are a thousand years old. We're like the sequoias of, of podcasting. Like, how old is it? Yeah. But we've all had interviews that, and we don't have to name names, but you've all had either people on the show or interviews on the show where you're like, what, like, what the hell is your guest thinking? And I'm wondering if maybe you have a story. I can tell you one that I had. I actually have had this twice and they were both early on and they helped me shape the way I interview people. First one was the guy I had to tell three times not to be promotional. And I ended up not even running the interview because I would say he was a guy with some tax strategies. And I'd say, so Jim, uh, tell me about the Roth IRA. Well, like I tell you in my book, and I don't even remember the name of the book. Like I tell you in my book, 201 uses for the Roth IRA available in hardcover at (laughs) Amazon. The, The Roth IRA is a really important tool. And everybody needs to use it and they all need to know that there are some critical things that you need to know to make sure you get the most out of the Roth IRA. And so then I said to him, Jim, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on because I want to know what those critical things are. Well, you know, in my book, 201 <laughs> uses for the Roth IRA available on Amazon, I give you all of those and let's be clear here, Joe, they are super important. They couldn't be more important And not knowing them is going to make sure that you lose thousands and thousands of dollars. I've seen people whose retirements were ruined because they didn't know those secrets. And so it it was pretty comical because then I asked him again, so what are those secrets, Jim? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my book. And, and so then finally I had to stop the interview. I'm like, I just need you to give me something, man. Just give me something. He's like, well, I want people to buy my book. I'm like, I can't, I, I'm not going to run this. And so we ended up anyway. Uh, finishing the interview. And then he wrote me an angry letter that we weren't doing it, which is funny because Paula, you've been podcasting mm-hmm. for a long time. 99% of your guests come, they show up. I don't know if it's because they listen to podcasts or they know why they're there. Like, I don't know. You, you all seem to have great conversations. Well, thank you. But, but there's got to be that 1% of the time where you're like, did you do any PR trading at all?
2: I definitely get a lot of pitches where I'm like, you've never heard this show. This is like a spray and pray, you know, spam pitch. So I I certainly get a lot of pitches that are way off base.
0: I get lots of B2B pitches. Do you get those too? I want to teach entrepreneurs how to do something. I'm like, that's not what we do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I get a handful of those. And then I get a handful of like, I'm the CEO of blah, blah, blah. I, I just got like three of those earlier today through Instagram. Most of the bad interviews get weeded out in the pitch and approval and screening process. But there were definitely a couple, particularly early on. um, There's there's one specific one that I'm thinking about where this particular guest didn't really have any advice to share that wasn't just completely cliche. Like the whole (laughs) interview was cliches and platitudes.
0: Try your best.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Like it was just platitude after platitude after platitude. Give it
0: 110%.
2: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, largely in part because of that, I, I made the decision, two decisions. One is that I move more in the direction of interviewing experts, a true experts, so not just self-proclaimed experts, but people who have PhDs in given topics, people who are professors of given topics, people who are not just Amazon bestsellers, quote unquote, but truly Wall Street Journal or New York Times list bestsellers. So I made the decision to go to move more in the direction of interviewing researchers, academics, intellectuals, and people who are, are established with the mainstream gatekeepers. I also asked I do interviews a personal than personal journey, uh, unless I know that person very, very well. More of my interviews tend to be based around ideas, concepts, theories. Both of those have helped quite a bit.
0: I want, though, I want that personal journey. And I want the, quote, every man that nobody else has talked to. The problem is every time I get that person in front of a microphone, it's their first time in front of a microphone. or They don't even understand that you should have a microphone, Right. And it ends up being either I have to spend a ton of time on pre-interviews, getting them ready for, for the show, or B, they show up and they're just not ready for the podcast, which I find kind of frustrating.
2: Right, exactly.
0: Doc?
5: So I have two funny stories. Um, one is someone pitched me on doing a panel of three people who are kind of friends about making fun of the personal finance, financial independence, retire early community. You're kidding me. And so, and I, and I admittedly, I was kind of like, okay, let me see how this goes. So I had them on and they insulted all my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, some of it was funny. But they actually kind of insulted all my friends. So I I kind of said, okay, we're done. I mean, I didn't, I I did the interview, but I, I didn't air it. And I think way. they I think they knew at the end, because at the end I was kind of like, well, actually, I think very highly of these people, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was one story. The other story is I had Jen Smith and Brad and Ted Klontz on, and we had this really great conversation about behavior and investing in money. And, you know, I always end my shows with what's up next. And where can we find you? And as I think it was Brad was going through what's up next. And where can we find you? I look up and realize I am not recording. Oh, so this is 40 minutes into the conversation. I'm not recording. I'm closing it up. (laughs) And I have this moment where I was like, okay, yes! after this, I normally would have everyone, you know, give their outro. Then I would say, "This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast." I'm Doc, G- I have myself, Doc G, blah, blah blah. You know, that's a wrap. And so I'm realizing I'm not recording, but I'm too embarrassed at the moment to tell them and to just stop it after 45 minutes. So I had them finish. <laughs> And then I still did the outro <laughs> And then I told them I told them later oh, I later no. told them you know what I really screwed up I didn't record it but I just I couldn't tell them like I was so like deflated I couldn't tell them at the moment I had to like pretend like it was going For the last two minutes And then like tell them later at a different day Because I was like it was too much But that moment I realized and I'm like Do I continue the charade?
0: <laughs> oh geez happy that we're not the only one who's done that
4: happens a lot. Not a lot. Every yeah. so often. Every, every so, so often. often. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's happened more since I've been moving around. I feel like and now we have like backup on top of backup. Like I think we're recording this three different times, maybe four. <laughs> Paula, you getting it too?
2: Well, I'm not because clean feed, it doesn't record on clean feed. Yeah. So, gotcha.
0: So yeah. only,
2: only when we're on Skype, can I record a, but every <laughs> time that we're on Skype, I always record a backup.
0: Yeah. My dad's shortwave, you mean I'm my dad shortwave radio. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. There you go. Much better.